And our sermon series over the Psalms of Ascent continues today. We're going over Psalm 130. Three times a year, our ancestors were to leave their work, their homes, their towns, everything, and they were to go up to Zion, to Jerusalem, to worship the living God. And while worship means can be used in diverse ways in the scripture, when we talk about the pilgrimage feast, going up to Zion to worship, it's very specific on what it means. Going up to Zion, going up to the temple, is the place of sacrifice. So worship as sacrifice. We think worship like singing songs. When they would talk about going to Jerusalem to worship, it means a place of sacrifice, a place to be forgiven and reconciled to God and a place to have fellowship with God. You went to sacrifice to be forgiven, to have fellowship with your God. So that's what that means. It's very specific. And there are many types of offerings that the people would offer, but here's a general principle of sacrifice, the burn offering. So this is the, the point in your Bible. If you're reading through the Bible in the year, you need to Leviticus. This is, and you skip over it because you're like, none of this makes sense to me. This is what they would talk about. This is how they would worship. And the burnt offering was something that you would do. Remember, the males had to go to Jerusalem. All the males would have to. So as the head of the family, this was your responsibility. You would do this. Let's read how they would worship. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. It had to be a perfect animal. Couldn't be sick or deformed or anything like that. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting or the temple, that he may be accepted before the Lord. It's like you couldn't come empty-handed. Remember we read that, like you don't come empty-handed to worship because it's not worship if you come empty-handed. And he, the head of the household or the male, the father, you would lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him or forgiveness. Then he, the worshiper, shall kill the bull. So you would do the work if you were the head of the home. You would kill this animal before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood from the animal and throw it on the sides of the altar and it would burn up and they'd cut it up and they'd burn it up and all that stuff. That was understanding. That's worship. Worship is very specific when we're talking about going to Zion. So these pilgrims, three times a year, they're going to do this because set for worship as sacrifice means forgiveness, and forgiveness means fellowship with God. And not only is that how they got forgiven by spilling the blood of the animal, some of the sacrifice, though, we're talking about fellowship with God, would go back to the worshipers and they'd eat part of the sacrifice at the temple after they worshiped, which is a crazy idea. They're literally eating barbecue and fresh bread with the Lord after they get forgiven. So they worship is to offer up something to be forgiven. You then get reconciled back to God. And then God says, let's have a barbecue together as my forgiven people and celebrate and love one another. That's what they would do three times a year. And that was understood as worship. That's how God's people enjoyed him. So you could say true worship, the heart of true worship, of true religion in a biblical sense is that God Almighty has provided a way for his people, his chosen pilgrims, to be forgiven and accepted by him in order to have true fellowship with him despite our sinfulness. Think of how gracious God is that even though we are sinful and rebel against him, he says, this is the way I'm giving you 
to be reconciled and forgiven to me so we can be one again and be a family and eat together again. It's a gift of God. So keep this idea of worship in mind, this idea of worship as sacrifice, fellowship, communing with God, eating with God. Keep that in mind because that is what these people would think when they sing these songs. And this principle of worship and fellowship with God as sacrifice is still true today for the church. With that in mind, let's stand. We're going to read the 100 and Psalm, 30, Psalm 130 together. And we're going to pray and see what the Lord has for us today. All together, church. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's bow our heads and call upon God together. Father God, we just read the word out loud. And we know that ultimately this is about Christ and his bride, the church. Give us proper interpretation, Holy Spirit. Lead us to Jesus in this passage. Illuminate the text for us. May it not just be stuck in our minds, but let it sink down into our hearts. Give us instruction today. Help us be true worshipers. Help us, even in this moment, receive what you have for us. Interpret the scriptures. Build us up in the faith. In Christ's name we ask these things. For his glory and namesake we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to cough, so hold on. <coughs> Sorry, that didn't help. Uh, Job, one of the Old Testament characters... In his great sufferings, he asked one of the central questions of the Bible. He asked, how can a man be right with God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Because being right with God, church, is everything. Because what are the consequences of not being right with God? And this psalm attempts to answer that question today. It's a penitential psalm or a song of repentance, because sin and forgiveness, we just read, is talked through all eight verses of this psalm. And it quickly leads us to our main point for what, what this psalm really is all about today is this, is that God pardons penitent pilgrims. God pardons penitent or repentant pilgrims. It's one of the greatest truths of scripture. The God of the universe, the God who formed all things, including you and me, really does forgive sinful creatures who seek him in sincerity. And this psalm gives those going up to worship, those going up to sacrifice, to be reconciled and forgiven by God and fellowship with him, it gives them a framework, like a way to think about what's going to happen to them, 
about how to actually have a penitent heart, a repent posture, if you will, because you got to have the right heart posture. Because imagine the person who would go to temple to do all these things, but has no desire in their heart to actually repent. Because think about it, you could go through the motions, right? You could go up to Jerusalem. You could go up to Zion with the pilgrims. You could bring the best of your offerings of your flocks and you could do all this stuff. But imagine if your heart wasn't in any of that. Scripture warns us and tells us very plainly that those who are like that, who don't have penitent hearts when they come seeking mercy from God, from the temple of God, it's vain. God mentions this through several of the prophets. Through Amos, hear what God says about those who come to worship with false pretense. God says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your assemblies. And even though you offer me your burn offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs and to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. And then through Isaiah, and this is a regular theme in the prophets that people are going to worship and do the churchy things, but the hearts ain't in it. So it's regular through the prophets. You'll read stuff like this. In Isaiah, God says, when you come to appear before me, like come into the temple, who has required of you to trample my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Your incense is an abomination to me. Even the worship of the priest was rejected by God because it was all vain. It was a false pretense. They weren't really penitent. They weren't repenting their hearts. They were just doing the things because you do the things because God said to do the things, not because you really wanted to do the things or you believed in the things. And God says, none of that. You're wasting your time. You might as well just keep your sacrifice at that point. Church, God does not pardon those who worship with a false pretense. He doesn't. You can't seek forgiveness if you don't think you need forgiven or you don't think you, you have to. It doesn't make sense. But for those pilgrims seeking true mercy and pardon from the living God, it all begins with contrition of heart, our first preaching point. Verses one and two. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Contrition is remorse or holy guilt, which comes from when we recognize our sin for what it really is. It's crimes against God. It's crimes against his kingdom. Your sin is not just bad things you do. It's bad things you do against the living God. And this is one of the primary purposes of God's holy law is to reveal to us what sin really is. The scripture tells us all the time that God's law reveals what sin is. So there is no doubt what good and evil really is. Think of the Ten Commandments. Idolatry, using God's name in vain violating God's Sabbath rest, come our church gatherings, a lying tongue, murder, adultery, theft, dishonoring or disobeying or shaming your parents, covetousness, like extreme jealousy. All these simple commands, they reveal more than just what you do is wrong. They have a deeper meaning than just to tell you what you've done is wrong, but they reveal who you are by what you've done. Because it's all a heart issue. Jesus said, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. It's a heart issue because what we do is because of what we are. What you do is because of who you are. 
we're sinful people. And that's you, that's me, that's every man, woman, and child that's ever been born since the garden when Adam and Eve first rebelled against God. We're all born in this thing called sin, and you do sin. You do it, and you know you do it. And back to God's law, you really know you do it, especially if you've heard the commandments. And this is where the test comes in. Are you sad for who you are? That's not a very popular thing to say in our culture that says love yourself and forgive yourself and all that nonsense, but are you sad for who you are? Because anybody can be sad for what they do. For instance, you can be sad you got caught cheating on your wife or telling a great lie or whatever. But are you sad for who you are that you wanted to do those things? Are you sad that was a real desire in your heart? Are you sad that you gossip? Not just the act, but that you are a gossip. Are you sad that you're a liar? The commands of God are to get to the heart of the issue, which is the heart. So when you think about contrition, that's what we're talking about. Are you sad for the status of your heart? What's in there? The things you do flow from your heart, Jesus said. Are you sad about that? So do you think and feel like this psalmist? We just read, did you hear us? Like, God, I cry to you from the depths. I'm crying for mercy from the depths of my, like, my guts. Do you hear his, like, his guttural prayers? Like, I'm crying to you, God. Is that you? Is that me? Is that all of us? Do we really recognize our need for mercy and crying out to God because of who and what we are and what we do? A repent heart begins with contrition, recognizing what sin is and what we are. Because you can't worship in sincerity if you don't think that's you. The good news begins with the bad news of who you are and who I am. Is this you, Christian? Are you broken over your sins? Because God only pardons penitent pilgrims, and it begins with, a con- with contrition, recognizing your sin, who you are. And along with contrition, a pilgrim must know and embrace the absolute certain end of sinners and the absolute, certain, abundant mercy that God offers to those sinful people. It's our second preaching point. The certainty of sin and mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. Church, here the psalmist is making an important point, very important point. No one can stand before God unless God grants mercy and forgiveness. Nobody can. Because God promises that all those who sin will die. For the wages or earnings, like what you get from a job, you go to work to expect to get paid, Scripture tells us that the wages or the earnings of sin is a guaranteed death sentence that you earned. You brought it on you. You did this to you. Which is separation from God, eternal judgment, hell, whatever, all the different ways we could express that. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You, me, all of us, we're all corrupt. Simply put, you and I can't dig ourselves out of the grave we've dug for. We can't dig ourselves out of the grave. We can't. We've fallen into our own pit. We need someone to help us. We're powerless. That's how scripture describes us as dead in our sins and trespasses. Powerless to do anything about our spiritual estate. But God Almighty, the creators of the heavens and the earth... He is filled with such abundant mercy to those who call on him in sincerity. And he's provided, with them for, he's provided for us 
He has provided for those who call upon him the means to receive the mercy and forgiveness they need. Sacrifice, forgiveness, fellowship, true worship. God has provided these things out of his goodness towards us. So think about that pilgrim going up to Jerusalem. They knew that the end of their journey, as they made their way up the mountain, because Jerusalem's a mountain, and you go up to Jerusalem, they knew that at that mountain peak, after that long journey, wherever they came from in Israel, they knew that at the end of that journey, mercy was waiting for them. The house of God, the place to be forgiven, was waiting for them. It was their hope, their expectation. That's where I need to be. And think about the temple itself. It's in its deepest chambers, was a sacred relic called the Ark of the Covenant, like the golden chest. You've seen Indiana Jones, right? Like the Ark of the Covenant is God's presence for his people. And the lid of this sacred chest is called the mercy seat. Literally, God's seat is one of mercy. Mercy flowed from the temple for those who would come and receive it, for those who would come and worship. It was for them. Think of the ache in your heart. Think if you were guilty and you know you did something so evil and you're making your way up to Jerusalem and you're like, that's where I need to go to get reconciled to God. He will receive me there. So many times in the Psalms, David will say things like, I'd rather spend an eternity in your house or I want to spend time in your house or I'd rather be a doorkeeper of your house than anywhere else. That's the type of attitude they have because that's where God lived and that's where God forgave people from the temple. And for us today, this mercy of God is still flowing and being offered, but it's through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's mercy seat for us today. And we're going to talk more about it at the end. But in short, the pilgrim must trust that the Lord really does offer mercy because no righteous deeds we can do is going to fix my estate. No good deeds the pilgrim can do are going to take that guilt away. Only trust in God's mercy Only God himself, the one we have offended, can pardon his people. And to those pilgrims who have a contrite heart and they trust in this mercy and forgiveness that God says is with him, this abundant mercy, a life of diligent prayer will flow. Our third preaching point, constancy in prayer. Verse five and six says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Here the psalmist is now waiting on God to fulfill his mercy. It's pictured in that that journey to Jerusalem is still going on. They're still singing these psalms. And he hasn't reached the temple yet, but he waits for it each and every day. And he uses an illustration of guard duty. Like if you're in the military, someone has to stay up all night to make sure that you don't get ambushed in sleep. You know, we understand like security guards, right? Someone's got to watch the property and patrol. He's like, I wait for morning because one sunrise, I'm going to be at the temple. I'm waiting for God's mercy to eventually be at Jerusalem. I ache for morning like the security guard wakes for the dawn so I can keep making my way up to God. And that's the language he's using of making this way up to Zion. These are simple prayers of trust and hope for God to safely see the pilgrim all the way on his journey. He's hoping in God's mercy, like the sunrise, to take him to where he needs to be. Because think about it, that's a long journey. That's not safe. Leaving home, traveling in the countryside, maybe hundreds of miles, whatever, like that's a long journey. And he's like, I'm trusting God to get me where I need to be. They're prayers of faith. 
And we know that faith is what God responds to. We must have faith that God is going to bring us to his place of mercy because without faith, no man can see God. And this also serves as an illustration. I think it serves as a really good illustration. Think about this. How many times in your Christian life you've gotten in trouble or caused a bad situation because of your sin? There's fallout, there's collateral damage, you've hurt relationships, and in the the depths of your closet or wherever you're at, you got on your knees and you asked God to forgive you. And you know he does, but how many of you still had to wait to see how God was gonna work out the damage you did? I got a picture right away this week of like adultery and divorce. Think about the damage that causes church, God forgives our adulteries. He really does, or else we have no hope. But think of the damage that causes and think of having to wait on God to work out his mercy and what that looks like and how he's going to fix stuff. That's what made me think about this picture for this week, waiting on God's mercy, waiting for God to do something. It's a good illustration for that. Church, a life of constant prayer Waiting on God's mercy is what we are to be about. Do you pray for God's mercy regularly? Do you wait for his mercy like the sunrise? Do you wait on it like that? We're always to be praying and waiting with great expectancy. For God truly does pardon and deliver his penitent pilgrims, but it happens in the right time and in the right ways. And lastly, the concluding verses, they turn this psalm from like an individual crying out to God to a corporate or group prayer or group confession, verses seven and eight. It says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Church, with our God, there is steadfast love, or what we call covenant faithfulness. This word, chesed, It's translated in a bunch of different ways in your Bible. Some of your scriptures might say God's goodness or his kindness or his mercy. But this meaning of steadfast love is a very deep word in the scripture. It carries a lot of weight to it. God is perfectly faithful and loving and kind to his chosen people. Uh, If you think of covenant faithfulness or steadfast love, think of the love that we're supposed to proclaim to one another in marriage, right? You are loyal to the point of death. You're loyal to the end. So if you think of God's covenant faithfulness, think of marriage. It's like that. God is never not faithful to his children. He always does the right thing to us, for us, and ultimately for his glory. He never fails in loving and providing for us what we need. He'll always do what's best. Because covenant love is relational love. It's enduring, it's lasting, it doesn't fade away. Or think of how a father will do whatever it takes to protect his children. It's like that. And this covenant love described in these two passages, these two verses here, it's all about forgiveness. Think of how prophetic this statement is. Because of God's unfailing love and perfect commitment to his people, the Lord, like a good father, has ensured that his sinful children have what they need to be forgiven of their iniquities so that they can be with him forever. Church, this is speaking ultimately of Jesus Christ. 
Everything our ancestors understood about worship as sacrifice, as reconciliation, as fellowship with God, everything they understood about that finds its fullest meaning in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. God gave his only son as an offering for sin to forgive us, to reconcile us so we can have real fellowship with God forever. And God in his goodness has even given the church a weekly pattern of worship that embodies this story and this reality. What we do every Sunday is true worship, the worship of our ancestors where they came to sacrifice. We do the same things every week to affirm to us, God affirms to us, that our salvation is real. Just like the pilgrims of old, we come up to Zion, the temple of the living God, which the New Testament says is the church. We recognize who God is. We recognize our sin. We confess. We offer up ourselves. We offer our lives. And we offer up the simple gifts of bread and wine to the Lord. We are accepted because of our faith in the sacrifice of Jesus. Then the Lord has fellowship with us. We feast on the sacrifice of Christ. Communion. And communion means fellowship. So literally we're eating with God just like our ancestors would. Only rather than being barbecue at a temple... It's bread and it's wine or it's juice. It's the same principle, just different looking. And then we rejoice as God's forgiven people. We leave here with a good conscience. We leave here cleansed from our sin. We leave here encouraged. Our worship is no different than it was of old. It just might not be with barbecue and a big open flame. It might not be with bells and whistles. But the principle of true worship as sacrifice is true in both covenants. It's the same. Then we get sent out as a renewed and encouraged people to live as God's people in this fallen world, to testify to his goodness that we, you too can be forgiven. Come with me to the temple. Come with me on this journey. The Great Commission, the cycle then repeats every week. How gracious God has given us a weekly reminder that we really are forgiven in his people. Because church, God really does forgive his penitent pilgrims, those who seek forgiveness and mercy and truth. So my exhortation to you, if you hear anything I'm saying today, if there's anything that you need to hear this morning, it's this. God always forgives those who seek mercy through Jesus Christ. If there's anything you hear today, hear that. God really does give mercy to those who seek it through Jesus Christ. Period. He doesn't withhold it. And the pattern of the worship of the church reflects this reality. So Christian, today, if you're downcast, if, if you're still holding on to sin, if you feel guilty about the past, don't listen to our culture that says things like forgive yourself or any of that nonsense. You can't. You're only forgiven through the sacrifice of Jesus. So if you're feeling guilty or the devil's come poking on your heart, reminding you of your failures, or maybe you did sin this week and it's rough, cling to the cross. Remember the promises in communion. We just, we take it, but really let that heart set in. Jesus said, this blood is spilt for the remission of sins. This body is broken for the forgiveness of the world. Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. Let the promises of communion be true to you. We have forgiveness in Jesus Christ, period. There's no doubt about it. But the devil does a really good job of keeping us in our sins by reminding us like, oh, you're not really forgiven. You're a hypocrite. You're still doing the same things. You're, you're not a son and daughter of God. You're a liar. And God says, look to my son's sacrifice. Feed yourself on my son. 
Feed yourself on Jesus and what he did. Don't trust in you. Trust in what my son did for you. And the pattern of the church is supposed to build us up in that reality. But to those of you who are not in Christ, who haven't been baptized, who have not accepted the son of God for who he is, you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. You're living alienated from the worship of the God. You're living separate from the offering of forgiveness that he gives us. And the question I have for you is, do you really believe that sinners die? Do you believe that? Or do you recognize your great need to confess the Lord Jesus, be baptized, be a part of the church and partake in true worship? Will you do that and find peace and rest for your souls and join us and celebrate in who this Jesus is that we have? And you too can sing these songs with us as we go to worship every week and have real fellowship with the living God and real fellowship with one another. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you gave him as the sacrifice to really reconcile us so we can have real fellowship with you, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be the people of God. Thank you for this reality. Thank you that you pardon penitent pilgrims through Jesus Christ regularly because the Apostle John says that Whenever we confess our sins to you, Lord, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Thank you for this Jesus and his eternal work of salvation that's in us. Help us cling to the hope we have that we really are forgiven people. Help us not trust in ourselves, but trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ as we continue on these pilgrim's paths. Be with us now, Lord, as we respond. May every person respond in their own way. May everybody hear what they need to hear this morning and let the rest just blow away like chaff. You know what everybody here needs to hear this morning, Lord Jesus, and how you're going to work in our hearts. We love you. We thank you. Build us up in the faith.